Welcome to La Lumination with your hosts, the fabulous Jimmy LaLumia and me, Susan Faber-Gady. Come with us as we delve into the lesser-known facts about music business history and pop culture with an occasional infusion of current events as told through the lens of music. to another episode of La Lumination, the October edition. Happy Halloween, everybody. My co-hostess, the lovely Susan Faber-Gady, joins me. Hi, Sue. Hi, Jimmy. How you doing? And I'm doing great. Good. I'm doing great. Um, we have as our guest tonight someone who I've known for decades. Uh, last time around, we looked at the early days of Max's Kansas City the Ruskin years, and we're going to pick up from where we left off and continue through to the very end of Max's, except for the resurrections that this gentleman has arranged every few years in downtown Manhattan, keeping it alive. So without further ado, I would like to introduce the one and only Mr. Peter Crowley in Florida. Hello, Peter. Hello, Peter. Hello. Hi. Hi, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me. How is it in Florida? How is it How in is Florida? It? Is it hot down there? Uh, it's beginning to cool off, unfortunately. Yeah, here too. Alrighty. <laughs> Summer. Very good. Well, that's it. That's... And, you're, and you're wearing a mask in public, Peter? Uh, whenever I go indoors. You're following your uh, safety precautions for uh, the epidemic? I'm trying to keep people about 20 feet away. <laughs> well, that's always a good idea. Yeah. That's always a good idea. <laughs> and we are too. So anyway, so anyway uh, um, when last we left off, uh, Mickey Ruskin had sold Max's Kansas City to the late Tommy Dean and Laura Dean. Peter Crowley, uh, well, uh, Peter, tell us your, your arrival in New York and your early days in New York. Oh, boy. Three well, maxes. Well, well, first, um, uh, Mickey Ruskin. In a nutshell. Yeah. Uh, Mickey Ruskin just walked away from maxes. Tommy and Laura were in right. Paris. They heard about it. And Tommy sent uh, a message to his lawyers in New York. Uh, and asked, what would it cost to get the place? And uh, nobody had put a lien on, on the, the club except for the electric company, uh, Con Ed. And so Tommy bought Maxis from Con Ed for $3,500. Wow. wow. Not a good, not a bad deal. Not a bad <laughs> deal at all. <laughs> Me. <laughs> Now you, unbelievable. Now you at the, t you at the time, Peter, um, you were booking at a club called Mothers, and you were booking many of the bands that went on to become the bands of the New York rock scene and eventually the punk rock scene. How did that all come about with the whole Mothers gig? Oh, well, Hilly is responsible. <laughs> okay, tell us. Uh, I, I had begun. Uh, managing the career of Miss Jane County. And I went to Hilly and asked, 
for a gig. He said, come back in three weeks. So I came back in three weeks and he said, come back in three weeks again. And when he did that for a third time, I went to Jane and I said, why am I getting this friend again? And she said, uh, she had been there to see the Ramones and Elliot said, do you want to play? And she never got back to him. So I figured out he was feeling disrespected or whatever. And I said, okay, there, there, were, there are no other clubs. Uh, at that point, the 82 was closed or everything. Uh, if you weren't a top, top 40 cover band, there were no gigs. So I went to a friend and I said, do you know of any bars where I can put on shows? And he took me to Mother's. Make the long story short, I booked Miss County in for a week. It was a big success. And then I said, well, now that I'm doing this, I might as well bring in some other bands. And so I started stealing all of Hilly's bands. And uh, adding a few of my own. And that's how I got started. And then Tommy Dean went around town after, after opening up uh, Max's and being packed for about 10 days and then being empty, he started going around and asking people, what did I do wrong? What, 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 why is nobody coming back? And he asked Jane. And Jane said, I, uh, I, I don't know anything about that. Ask my manager. So Tommy came to me and I went and I gave him a list of all the things he did wrong, which was uh, required a yellow legal pad. Write <laughs> them all down. And he found everything I said to be very bizarre because in his world, uh, none of the things we did made any sense. But he was desperate, so he let me book a Sunday night. That went over well. And then he let me book a Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday for a couple of weeks. So that was okay. So then he let me have Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. He held on to Friday and Saturday because he had a successful disco night, a live disco band. And that continued from the fall of 75 uh, until Easter of 76 when I did the, the first Max's Kansas City Easter Underground Rock Festival. An idea I also stole from Billy Crystal. And uh, of course, I only had. Um, Sunday through Thursday, so we did two two weeks of Sunday through Thursday, and they were so successful that Tommy then ditched the dis disco and gave me the seven days. So there's the nutshell. There you go. There you go. Wow. Now I want to ask you a question because it just dawned on me when I spoke to Yvonne. She asked me about going in the back room, which. I never had any fascination with, and I never asked you or Tommy, was the back room still active for Max's volume two? I didn't even, I didn't even know. Was the back room still a thing when punk went in the 76 period? Was that still a thing or was it done? It was done. Um, That's what I thought. Okay. Nobody, nobody ever went back there unless they wanted a quiet place to talk away from the, the, the jukebox and the, the, the general right. So we could turn off the jukebox speakers in the back room and you could have a 
Christmas meeting. Every now and then, um, Mike Craig, who ran the, the restaurant for Tommy, uh, would have a, a special event or a party or something back there. But it never functioned uh, as the back room ever again. Right. Okay. Yeah, because I was, I was always curious about that. I just realized once I was coming up there much more frequently during your reign, I don't think I ever even thought about it. And I had known about it for years, but that answers that question. So thank you. Now, managing Wayne County at the time, what were the, 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 the positives and the negatives of trying to market the first trans artist in pop, pop culture history? I mean, there has been a classical artist who transitioned and there's been, but I mean, for pop music, rock and roll, uh, this was a first, which you bravely stepped into uh, marketing in the rock and roll universe, which is a very straight, and very phobic universe at that time, as Dick Manitoba brought to a, a head one day. So tell us a little bit about what all that was like in that era. Well, of course, uh, as you know, uh, Main Man never uh, recorded the album they promised uh, uh, Miss Cammy that they would do. So that. My, my first uh, 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 concern was to, to figure out how to get some shows and, and get some money because the main man uh, uh, allowance had been completely cut off and she didn't have a dime. Um, and of course, as soon as I went over to Max's, I got her the job uh, as DJ upstairs. And so, and so that then she had a, a regular steady kind of thing. Then I put my mind to, okay, how, how am I going to get uh, uh, a record made? Uh, I thought it was very important, uh, both for posterity, but also uh, to, to, to get her career launched. You know, without a record out, you don't get beyond the, the underground. So as it happened, I had been working for ESP Disc as a salesman. Uh, actually just going around and restocking all the Manhattan record stores with the ESP disc albums. So I went to Bernard and I said, would you be willing to uh, to make a, an album with, uh, with Wayne County and the Backstreet Boys? And he said, sure. So on his promise to pay for the studio, we went into a studio in Brooklyn uh, went with uh, with Wayne doing her own production, and uh, the, the the band Wayne and the band finished an album there that was uh, it was in some ways uh, uh, an anachronism. The music was pre Ramones, shall we say, and and and. Uh, and, and, and musically, relatively commercial rock and roll based on you know the stuff that Jane likes, and lyrically, completely uncommercial. So, we brought a cassette of the album up 
up to Bernard. He was there with his new bride. They listened to it. She started making faces uh, and turned to Bernard and said, oh, this is disgusting, blah, 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 blah. And then Bernard says, it sounds too commercial. I'm not going to put it out. So That's hysterical. <laughs> well, <laughs> really is. The reason he heard it as commercial was the band was in tune. I mean, if you listen to the, the bands that he put out on, the rock band that he put out on ESP, most of them are free inept. Or uh, in the case of Pearls or Swine, the guy had a, a noticeable speech impediment, which, which made it difficult for him to to uh, compete in the mainstream. So ESP liked that sort of thing. And then here comes Wayne County and the Backstreet Boys, you know, competing with the, the Kinks. I mean, if, if, if wasn't what he wanted for ESP. So for me, it was, okay, here we go again, back to the drawing board. So I thought and I thought, and then I came up with an idea. I knew that Tommy wasn't going to go for a Wayne County album, at least not at that time. But I thought perhaps he'd see the value in putting out a Max's Kansas City LP that would advertise his club. And so it didn't take much to talk him into just do it. So that LP was primarily a vehicle for Wayne County and the Backstreet Boys. Of course, I asked the Heartbreakers and I asked the Planets and I asked Up Darts and I asked Blondie. And they all turned me down, or their managers turned me down. Mink Bell was another one. Uh, they, they were all either on the verge of having a contract of their own or whatever reason. They, they, uh, they turned me down. So I got the, the next level, as it were, to John Collins, Harry Toledo. I chose Harry Toledo because somebody had played that song over the PA at CBGB's and I thought it was really good. And I did a Perubu because I heard a final solution as the almost a, a potential commercial hit record and yet, you know, brilliantly individualistic as well. So it was perfect. Suicide. I uh, figured out that, that there they'd been going now for, uh, for six years with, with not much success, uh, playing to very small audience and driving most of the people out of the venue they played because sound was scary. But I, I heard the potential for... Uh, or a recording career. So I said to Alan and Marty, go record me a couple of songs for our album. And I said, how much money do you need? And they said, well, our tape recorder's broken. So if you could give us 50 bucks, we'll get the tape recorder fixed. And, <laughs> and, we'll, and we'll record the songs. And they recorded them in their little rehearsal space in the basement. And they brought the songs to me and they were wonderful. 
Uh, they also brought an acetate of the two songs. Uh, uh, anybody doesn't know what an acetate was, it was a, a one-off 45 RPM seven-inch record that most people would do a, a song for their mother on her birthday or something like that. <laughs> Elvis Presley's famous for having done that and gotten his deal at Sun Records as a result. Um, yep. So they brought me this this acetate seven inch and I stuck it on the Max's jukebox. Uh, a few days later, Marty Thau is at Max's just having dinner and that song comes on the, the jukebox. And he had seen suicide uh, at least a dozen times before with Mercer Art Center and, uh, and other, other venues, but he'd never thought of them as anything but a performance art uh, act. And then he heard the song over the loudspeakers at Max's, and it dawned upon him that indeed they could be a recording act. So he signed them to Red Star, and they made an album, and got relatively famous as a result. Hallelujah. Now, Peter, I want to ask you a question. The Max's album you were putting together after the infamous. Manitoba versus Jane thing at CBGB's, right? That came afterwards? I think I it did. I think so. Because it was Maybe, 76. I... I, yeah. Yeah, because your UK journey was right around the corner after that. I was just curious if you I felt, because I believe that it happened after that incident, that some of the bands that said no to you for the Max's album did so because of the phobia that was being propagated by Punk Magazine, et cetera, during that period of time. Because uh, I remember it very vividly. It angered me a great deal when um, certain factions turned their back, even for the, the fundraiser, because uh, the fundraiser was 76, I think, wasn't it? At uh, the Manhattan Center. The Wayne County fundraiser for the legal yeah, fees, and, and I put I put together the album Nexus Kansas City '76 in '75, so I'm pretty sure that right, album okay. uh, uh, was, was first. Uh, yeah, the whole Manitoba thing was a, a, a terrible fiasco. Uh, uh, But it's now legend. Later, it's now legendary. Yeah, it is. Years later, I was go going through the the Mud Club to see Carl Perkins, and Richard Manitoba was sitting in his taxi outside waiting for a fare, and he called me over, and he said, "Peter, I just want to tell you, I'm not like that anymore." <laughs> and then, as we know, he and Zane um, made up, and, and he hired. Oh yeah, well, when we did the. Uh, yeah, we did this. We did the Squeezebox show. They did a duet of. Uh, I wanted them to do yeah. "I Got You, Babe," but they refused. They wound up doing "California Sun," but yeah, there was there was that phobia in New York, which made it even more difficult to manage an artist like Jane County at the time. Anita Bryant period of time that was going on. It was it was an interesting it was an interesting period of time. Now next in line for you was the UK, 1977. How did that transition occur from the Max's album and then suddenly you're in the UK? 
Well, uh, in, in December of 76, John Peel played several tracks uh, from the uh, Max's album on the first punk rock radio show ever to be broadcast in England. Uh, prior to that, Lee had taken the Heartbreakers uh, over to London to do the Anarchy Tour uh, with the Sex Pistols and the Damned and the Clash. So near the end of December or maybe the first week of January or something like that, uh, uh, Lee called Jane and said, get the hell over here. It's all breaking out and you know this is where you have to be. And Jane came and told me what Lee had said. So I called up Lee and he repeated essentially the same thing to me. So then I went to Tommy Dean and I said, so give me some money so I can fly over there and, and double check. And I did that uh, by myself. As soon as I, I landed there and saw what was going on, I, uh, I had to agree 100% with Lee. And so I called Tommy Dean and I said, give uh, Jane, well, I said, Wayne, of course, at the time, uh, and, and Greg, uh, uh, plane tickets so they can get over here and get them their passports and, and whatever. And so a couple of weeks later, uh, uh, Wayne and Greg arrived. I had, I had figured I could only uh, uh, bug Tommy for enough money to, to do the two of them and that there would be plenty of drummers and bass players in England and we would you know, be able to put the band together with Greg essentially as the band leader. And so we did that. And uh, Lee introduced me to Miles Copeland. Miles was very helpful. Uh, he, he wanted to record virtually right away. Uh, he hooked us up with a, uh, uh, a, a band. We, 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 we didn't know at the time it was Louise's band. <laughs> but, but anyway. Uh, uh, so we had a way to get around to gigs and, and uh, Miles had a little booking agency going there so uh, they began getting us shows all over the United Kingdom and uh, it just it began taking off it was terrific uh, we were able to do two European tours uh, the price we paid for that was to allow the uh, a, a little unknown band called the Police to be the opening act on those tours. That's a whole another book. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and and uh, uh, we went in the studio, and, and I produced uh, five songs. For, for peanuts and, uh, and, and the, you know, the, the, the things were happening. Uh, I think most importantly, when we put together the electric chairs, it was a band. Jane had agreed not to be 
Wayne County and, but rather to directly compete with Sex Pistols, The Clash, The Kinks, The Who, make a real band in which everybody in the band had a stake financially and artistically. So Miles went along with that. If you look at the Miles uh, uh, releases, you'll see it says electric chairs, and then lists all the band members, including Wayne County. Uh, Val Haller knew the people at at uh, Purple Records who uh, were morphing into Safari Records. And so he introduced me to, uh, to John Craig and that other guy, Tony, Tony Edwards. Tony, Tony Edwards, yeah. And uh, you have to understand that, that the major labels, and for that matter, the minor labels, were not clamoring to get Wayne County. They were all perhaps homophobic, certainly of the, the mindset that there was no commercial potential for a wild and crazy transsexual in your face look at all, <laughs> all the other descriptions that you made uh, you know in, in, in the business they, they they simply even if they personally uh, weren't weren't phobic uh, they weren't clamoring to, to sign the electric chairs okay. and so when Ari made a pretty decent offer, I went to Miles and I said, you, uh, uh, you know, we appreciate what you've done. Are you willing to match this offer? He got very angry and said no. And so uh, we went with Safari. Unfortunately, they were also a little bit timid. If you look at the first Electric Chairs album, you see a small picture on the back cover of Jane in the closet. It's a marvelous picture. <laughs> Jane's, of course, obviously not in the closet, but but here we go. So that was meant to be the front cover, of course, taking up the entire 12 inches on, on the LP. Well, the, the John, John and Tony thought it was much too wild and blah, 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 blah. And they stuck it on the back and they took that, that tired looking picture of the band to put on the front cover, a picture that should have been on the back small. And, and I think that hurt a lot. Uh, they also were afraid to put fuck off on, on the album. And that, hurt that, that was the, the most that was, that was a given. Yeah, yeah. But, but it Susan, was, cover your ears. Cover your ears. I did not utter an obscenity this time. You can't blame me. But in the, in the interest of artistic freedom, in the I'm interest good. of artistic freedom, that is the first single released on planet Earth that features that word in the title, and in the chorus, and it's another groundbreaking moment for Peter Crowley and Wayne Jane County, because before there was hip hop and before there was 
uh, hardcore punk, Peter Crowley, the electric chairs were hardcore because that was about as hardcore as you could get to and, release a song with that title. And Brave and Daring, too, because at and the time it, it was left of center for sure. And it was not Absolutely. right. So, you know, um, hardcore punk and, and hip hop made it fashionable to do that, made it acceptable. Brought Later it in, on, yeah. Brought it mainstream, you know, but it, back in the right. day when, when Peter was trying to do this, it was just a little too off kilter, I think, for the mainstream music industry. That's what happens to the pioneers. Yeah. That's what happens to the pioneers. Right. But yep. he, you, you persisted, Peter. You were brave and daring. I love that. Now, Peter oh. eventually got into some loggerheads, as they say, with Safari mm -hmm. Records. And we're going to keep it peaceful. But Peter, tell us how the relationship with Safari Records, it kind of, they, they did a number on you, basically. The first, the first clash, as it were, was when they, insisted on the second album of entitling it Wayne County and the Electric Chairs, which totally negated my entire plan for having a, a band. Right. There and, went your concept. <laughs> yeah. And drove a yeah. wedge between Wayne and the musicians, which which ultimately two years later resulted in the musicians getting extremely big heads and firing Jade, one of the most stupid <laughs> moves in the history of rock and roll. But I fought with them to, to try to get them not to do that, and they, they resented. I also fought for the band on, 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 on every, any issue that came up, you know, trying to get, get money for tours and things like that. And and therefore they they were always looking for a way to get, get me out of the way so that they could control Jane as if okay controlling Jane so perfectly idiotic <laughs> you know, nobody exactly. controls one one might even say that. Sometimes even Jane doesn't control Jane. <laughs> yeah. So their their desire to to uh, push me aside and 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 uh, somehow uh, tame or discounted was <laughs> beyond stupid. <laughs> but anyway, that was that was that was happening. And the band now that they had once again become the backing band, thanks to the idiots at Safari, began to resent that position. They thought I was a, a really terrible taskmaster and made them work too hard. <laughs> there wasn't enough money. They didn't understand that any money that I got out of Safari, they were going to pay back. It wasn't so, so I was trying to keep all all our expenditures at a very bare minimum. So they weren't. So they, they weren't understanding the concept of recoupment then. No, they, no. they had no idea. Okay. They just wanted more money in their pocket. Uh, uh, 
By the way, the electric chairs was five pieces. Okay. Only four of them on stage and me. The, the business deal was that profit split five ways. No manager taking 15% off the top, which often means that the, the artist gets nothing because the other 85% is eaten up by expenses. Right. So I wasn't making a dime. They weren't making a dime. We were making enough to live. And they didn't like it. They wanted, you know, they wanted to make make some money. I understand. Jane understood it. You know, that was never a problem. So the band, that is to say, on well, we're getting getting ahead of ourselves. Greg got beat up at the music machine. We were there to see some other band. I don't remember who. And the Clash. Was, the Clash. Oh, yeah. And he was upstairs. The, the, the dressing rooms were up in this tower of this old movie theater. And at the very top of the tower was a bathroom. And there was a little window. And if you looked out that window, you looked down, and it was directly above the stage entrance. There was a bouncer uh, uh, stationed at the stage entrance to, to make sure only the correct people got in. Greg was drunk. He thought it was funny to drop an empty beer bottle down on, on the bouncer, and he missed them by inches. And five bouncers came upstairs to that tower, and they beat him unmercifully all the way back down the stairs. Wow. Went down the stairs. If you look at that little picture, I mean the big picture on the front of the first album, you notice one side of Greg's head is swollen. He looks unfaithful. Mm, that that wow. was the result of him having a concussion or whatever. Wow. Anyway, never played right again. Everybody says it was because of the, the dope. And might have been. I mean, he may have started with the with the self-medicating because of the pain of that, that mm. beating. But um, in any case, he, all the shows immediately after that were ruined by him not being able to play properly. And it was really bad, but Jane was in love, and so she wouldn't fire him. So I said, okay, we got to do something about this. Let's bring in Henri to play rhythm guitar. And then I would instruct the sound men at the various gigs. If Greg starts making awful noises on his guitar, pull him out of the PA and push Henri up loud. And then the, that way the show won't be totally ruined. And I don't know, we did a maybe three or four more shows like that. Until Jane finally realized that. that, that the Greg situation was hopeless mm. and she agreed to, to let him go. And then the safari guy said, you can't fire him. Greg is the, the star, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. And they said, we have, a, we have a substitute waiting in the wings in Brooklyn. And, that, and I said, give me some money so I can fly with you. And so I called up Elliot and I said, we, we need you over here to uh, you know, are you willing to come join the band? 
you thought about it a little bit. He said, okay, give it a try. I sent him some money and a ticket. He arrived in, and uh, I remember the John, John Craig coming to the next show with Elliot in it. Of course, there were rehearsals and whatever. And uh, John Craig turned to me and said, he's just like Craig, which isn't quite 100% <laughs> accurate, but it was close enough. And so, they like to tear soldiers, soldiered on with two guitar players. And it took two to replace Greg. I mean, you, you know, I don't know if, 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 if everybody's noticed, but when you go see the electric chairs live, or even the Backstreet Boys when Greg was the only guitar player, it sounded like there was a rhythm guitar player and a lead guitar player up there. And that's because Greg had mastered the technique of strumming with one finger and picking out a lead with another. And so he was able to sound like two guitar players. Um, the originator. Yes, of yeah, amazing, amazing guitars. Yes. One of the, yes. one of the. And Peter, I just, Peter. Uh -huh. I, I just want to fill in the blanks for people not familiar with the subject matter. Uh -huh. Henri or Henry was a guitar player with the police, for those who don't know, who then got drafted into the electric chairs. And Elliot had been a backstreet boy as well in New York. So for those who didn't know the history, I'm just filling in the blanks as we go along. And for, uh -huh. you, as you, work, and for you young kids out there, when we say Backstreet Boys, we're not talking about the vocal group from the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we discussed that in a previous episode. Yeah, we well, for anybody, who missed, it, for anybody yeah. who missed it, there was yeah. a whole other Backstreet Boys. And yeah, we discussed that in the prior episode. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So, Peter, suddenly there's a rift with Safari Records and you're back in New York. Tell us about that. Well, there? Uh, Hello? the, 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 the yep. rift came to a head when on free, um, uh, uh, Val and JJ went to Safari and said they wanted me out of the picture. And, uh, and John and Tony jumped at that opportunity and said to me, if you don't leave, we're washing our heads of hands of, of, uh, of Wayne County and uh, the electric chairs. And, you know, there'll be no more recording. There'll be no more anything. So I said, okay, uh, I'm not going to stand in their way. Uh, uh, Give, give, give me $1,500 and I'll, I'll, I'll relinquish my entire uh, uh, contract, etc. cetera. Uh, and they gave me $1,500 and I flew back to New York. The reason I asked for $1,500 is that would cover my airfare and getting a new apartment. Uh, I knew that that money would be taken away from Jane and the boys, and I didn't want to take any more than I absolutely had to. John Craig then told the band that he'd given me $15,000 and took that out of their 
out of their royalties. Oh, wow. Wow. One of the great uh, rock and roll crimes of all time. Wow. So I landed back in New York. Uh, as we know, but Electric Chairs went on to make one more album. Uh, it, it, it's, it's got its moments. Uh, you can see with that third album, um, the uh, things uh, your mother never told you, that the band had been feeling restricted artistically. They were not happy doing the straight rock and roll, rhythm and blues based music of, of Jane County. They wanted to have their own avant-garde, jazzy, whatever stuff recorded. Had they come to me and had Safari gone along with it, I would have suggested that they be allowed to make their own album of, 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 uh, of the stuff they, they wanted to play but continued with Jane doing Jane-type music. Two of the songs on Things Your Mother uh, are, are modern and brilliant. Uh, uh, they were picked for the single, uh, Waiting for the Marines and Berlin. Unfortunately, the people at Safari decided to put that 45 out with a label that didn't say what, what it was. And that caused mass confusion and whatever. But the songs were really strong. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. Not sure so you're back to New York? For picking the, the, the uh, I'm, I'm getting the high sign from our producer yeah. that we're almost out of time. So what we're going to do we're going to bring Peter up to date because to fill in the blanks, Peter returned to New York, was back managing Max's Kansas City, booking more groundbreaking bands as he had been doing before the UK. And in more recent times, Peter has kept the flame alive with Max's Kansas City reunions. There's been three of them, four of them, and I think he wants to do one next year, COVID-19 permitting. So Peter, tell us a bit about that in the time we have remaining, about the, the reunion shows and what you've got planned. Unfortunately, uh, in order to do a, a reunion in June 2021, I would have had to begin booking it already. Mm. And so that's off the, the, the drawing board. Maybe 2022, in the words of Walter Lohr, will anybody be left alive? Uh, <laughs> wow. Pathetic. Yeah, really. Sadly, R.I.P. Yeah. Yeah. Walter Lohr, yes, yeah. who passed yeah. away. But, um, so but Peter did launch a very I mean, successful, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Now, I'm curious, how can we be out of time if this is going to be edited? 
because Zoom only gives you a certain amount of time, like airtime, and then they cut you off. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we're, we're... We don't edit the show. The sh yeah. We don't yeah. edit anything out of the show. The show will run in its entirety. But Zoom has other ideas. Yeah. Right. Zoom has they a, don't edit they don't edit us. Yeah. Right. They give you a finite anyway, finite amount of time. But we can always have Peter I, back on. I, I was just going to say, yes. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah I want to hear more. <laughs> I I definitely yeah, we want will, to hear more. There will be a Peter there will be a Peter Crowley part two. Good. Good. Wonderful. As long as he's agreeable, and I think he's agreeable. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Jimmy. It's been awesome. Uh, for anybody out there uh, who has not yet visited our website, please visit www.lalumination.com and visit us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and podcasts. Podcasts, podcasts. yes. You can catch this show as a podcast anywhere you get your podcasts. That's correct. And we appreciate everybody watching and we really appreciate Peter being with us today and we'll see you next time on Illumination. Illumination, thank you. Goodbye, Susan. Take Goodbye, care, Peter. Jimmy. Hey, Mark. Hey. Have a good one, everybody. This is the fabulous Jimmy LaLumia. Thank you for listening to Illumination. If you like what you're hearing, you can watch the full video episode on YouTube. Just search for the Lalumination channel or visit the website www.lalumination.com. Yeah.